Father, that is our prayer this morning, that you would open our eyes to see Christ more clearly than we have up to this point. Pray as we open your word, you would open up our eyes of our understanding to grasp more of the truth about what Christ has done for us. Pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that our affections, our emotions would be responding appropriately to the realities we'll be talking about. And I pray for anyone who is here who doesn't know Christ yet. Their eyes are still blinded to who he is, why he came, and what he promises. Lord, only you can cause the blind to see. And so we ask that you would do that miracle that as we discuss Christ and his work on the cross, that you would show someone who doesn't know you that that is exactly what they need. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for today gives us a very clear statement about the death of Christ and a less clear statement about the proclamation of Christ If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely Through the water. Martin Luther wrote this about these verses A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. So we'll start with the proclamation of Christ. Verse 19 says, He went and made proclamation. To proclaim or to preach is to declare or announce something publicly. Proclaim implies declaring clearly, forcefully, and authoritatively. So Wayne Grudem outlines three basic questions about these verses, along with three possible answers that have been offered for each one. So first, who are these spirits in prison? Are they unbelievers who have died? Old Testament saints who have died, or fallen angels? What message did Christ proclaim? Was it a call to repent, an announcement of his victory, or a pronouncement of final condemnation? And last, when did Christ proclaim his message? Was it during the days of Noah, or between his death on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter, or after his resurrection. I find the view of Matthew Henry, John Piper, and Wayne Grudem most compelling that Christ 
in the Spirit preached a message of repentance through Noah during the days before the flood. We saw in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 that the Spirit of Christ was working in and through the prophets. And 2 Peter 2, 5 tells us Noah was a preacher of righteousness in his day. So Christ preached through Noah. Those who heard the message disobeyed in the days of Noah before the flood, and they are now in prison experiencing God's judgment for their disobedience. So sincere Christians have come to different conclusions on these verses, but rather than trying to sort out some things that are less clear than we would like, let's focus our attention on what is really clear in these verses about the death of Christ. Peter's already touched on the death of Christ in this letter already. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 2, He said, we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ Chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And now in verse 18, Peter uses four phrases to help us understand the significance of Christ's death. First, Christ's death was for sins. The main idea of sin in the Bible is falling short, missing the mark not meeting a standard. Sin is any thought, word, deed, or attitude that fails to measure up to God's righteous standards. For example, Jesus said the greatest and foremost commandment is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind. None of us measures up to that. None of us loves God with all our being all the time. And so, just like Romans 3.23 says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the just consequences of our sin is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, which is true, but spiritual death, separation from God now, and which will last forever in hell, if not resolved. So to say Christ died for sins means Christ took the punishment for sins that a holy God requires and that we deserve to pay on himself. Second, Christ's death was once for all. The definition of once is one time and no more. Jesus' death was decisive and final for all time. It can never be repeated, never needs to be repeated. He fully accomplished everything necessary for redemption. Unlike Old Testament sacrifices, his sacrifice was perfect and complete and fully sufficient. And so when Jesus cried out, it is finished from the cross, he was declaring the debt of sin had been paid in full and forever. At the end of the service, we'll be singing, Jesus paid it all. And that's absolutely true. He paid 
everything. And because that's true, there's nothing left for us to pay and there's nothing that we can possibly add to it. Go to the book of Hebrews. And here's some more phrases about Jesus' death being once and for all. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Chapter 9, verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then in chapter 10, verse 1 starts with, The law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Third, Christ's death was a substitution. It says Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust. We're all familiar with the idea of substitution. A substitute teacher fills in for another teacher who is sick or on vacation. In basketball, a sub comes off the bench to take the place of a player who's hurt or fouled out. Years ago, Rod Hinson served some time in a Chicago jail as a substitute. His girlfriend had been arrested and sentenced to jail for breaking the law, and Hinson volunteered to take her place. And the judge ruled that such an offer was unusual, but it was legal. And so a lawkeeper experienced the consequences of being a lawbreaker, And a lawbreaker went free as though she was a law keeper. In an infinitely greater way, Jesus, the holy and righteous one, as Peter calls him in Acts 3, 14, dies as a substitute for unholy, unrighteous sinners who deserve God's judgment. Go to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. And just listen for how Paul describes us and our need for Jesus. Romans 5, beginning at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, justified means declared right in his sight, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Another text about Christ's death as a substitute is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If you want to turn over to that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin. So God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here's a double exchange. God treats Jesus as though he was a sinner like us. And he treats us as though we had lived a perfectly righteous life like Jesus. So Jesus gets our sins on him. We get our righteousness. We're clothed with that, as we sang earlier. And the last phrase, Christ's death was designed to bring us to God. So why did Christ die for sins once for all? The just as a substitute for the unjust. And Peter just could have ended there, but he adds the reason is so that he might bring us to God. Our sins had separated us from God Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So sin has broken our relationship with our creator. Colossians 1.21 says it's not just broken as in a neutral way, but we're alienated and hostile in mind. And so there's this massive barrier between us and God And unless it is removed, we will be cut off from God forever. Mark Dever writes this. After God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword at the entrance. Whether they wanted to or not, Adam and Eve could not bring themselves back to God. To attempt to enter the garden was to face the sword of God's wrath. The same is true for every one of us. No, if we are to get back to God, we'll need someone to open the way, someone to bring us back safely. And of course, Jesus is the way. He's the only way back to God. We can't bring ourselves to God. No one else can bring us there. Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Ephesians 2 also talks a little bit about that. You want to turn to Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, remember, talking to Gentiles like us, remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, we are far away from God, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. That's the only way sinners separated from God and far away from God can be brought near to God. It's through the blood of Christ. So the purpose of Christ's death was not just to rescue us from going to hell. Though, thank God, that's true. That's what we deserve, every one of us. And the design of Christ's death was not just to cleanse our guilty conscience, though that is also a great mercy. And contrary to what we might hear sometimes, the main point of Jesus' death on the cross was not so that we would feel special. Peter tells us that the purpose of Christ's death was nothing less than to bring us to God. This is from John Piper. All the saving events and all the saving blessings of the gospel are a means of getting obstacles out of the way so that we might know and enjoy God most fully. Propitiation means a sacrifice that removes wrath. Redemption, being set free. Forgiveness, sending away sin. Imputation, having righteousness credited to us and our sin credited to Jesus. Sanctification, being set apart more and more like Christ. Liberation, being set free. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Healing, heaven. None of these are good news except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of him The gospel is not just a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. So that's the ultimate purpose. is to bring us to God that we would glorify God forever. So as we close, do you have a restored relationship with God through Jesus and his finished work on the cross? God is convicting you that you aren't right with him. First confess, I have sins that need to be paid. I have sins that deserve to be punished. I am included in the people Peter's talking about when he says the unjust or the unrighteous. That's me. Ecclesiastes 7.20 makes it very clear. It says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So that's all of us. Everybody on this planet falls short. Recognize I can't remove the barrier of sin that separates me from God. Romans 5, 6, remember while we were still helpless? That means I'm absolutely helpless to fix this problem. Not just I can't do very much, but I can do a little bit. It means I can't do anything at all. I am absolutely unable to do anything toward fixing this broken relationship with God. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to contribute that would cancel out my sins. Even my so-called righteous deeds are as unacceptable to God as filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, 6. And so, I trust Jesus alone to forgive my sins and restore me to God. I believe what 1 Peter 3, 18 says about his Death. It was for sins. 
It was once for all. It was a substitute for sinners like me and is the only way that I could ever be brought to God. And then he didn't stay dead. I believe he rose again from the dead to show he had accomplished everything necessary for sinners like me to be forgiven and reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul wrote that to a church. He didn't write that as part of an evangelistic campaign. He wrote it to a gathering of people just like this, professing Christians of or at least curious people gathered for a church service. And he says, I'm very aware of the fact that there might be some of you who don't have peace with God, who haven't been reconciled to God. And he says, I beg you, get right today. Get reconciled with God today through Christ. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you that you provided the one and only way for sinners like us to come back to you. you would have been perfectly just to just forget about us, to let us die in our sins and experience the consequences they deserved. But in your great mercy and grace and love, you sent Jesus. And we thank you that he lived the life we should have lived and didn't. He died the death we should die in our place, and so that if we put our trust in him, Lord, we can be forgiven and restored. So thank you for that great gift of salvation in Jesus. I pray for anyone who's never received that gift, that even today they would receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior that he is. As this in Jesus' name, amen.